Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. This is one of my favorite books describing the multifaceted uh, grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, we've taken a break from our series in Acts, and we're going to be finishing up this little mini-series here on sanctification. If you would uh, look with me at verses 31 through chapter 5, verse 2. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Amen. Father, we're so grateful for Your grace. So grateful for your word that describes it and that is a light unto our paths. And uh, we pray that as we have struggled with some of the things in our own strength, that you would teach us how to not war with our own right hand, but to uh, war in the power and the might and the armor that you have provided by your grace. I pray that uh, your people would be encouraged and built up and uh, that they would go from this place uh, stronger and better able to glorify you. We pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully, even with the feebleness and the foolishness of preaching, to be used uh, to advance the cause of your kingdom. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. In the Gospel of John, chapter 11, there is the marvelous story of the death, and then the resurrection of Lazarus. And when Christ comes after Lazarus is dead, He asks them to remove the stone away from the tomb. And Martha objects, saying, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for He has been dead four days. The corpse was rotting, it was smelly, it was gross, and they just were not too excited about rolling this stone away. But uh, Jesus says to them, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So in obedience, they roll the stone away. Christ cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And I've always been intrigued by what the next verse says. It says, And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Now, I always found that curious. Jesus could just as easily, easily have made the grave clothes fall off of his body so they wouldn't have to go through all of this. It would have been far less of a miracle to do that than it would have been to raise a rotting corpse from the dead. But he chose not to. Instead, he chose to involve these people in touching that stinky garment and helping him to get those clothes off of him. He wanted them to see the glory of God for themselves. So he didn't do any miracle with these grave clothes, which meant they were in the same condition now that they were five minutes before, which means that they were soiled with body juices. The smell of the corpse was all over them. It was gross. Well, that is an analogy of how God works in our lives. Uh, scripture d describes our regeneration as being a resurrection from the dead. In fact, verses 17 through 19, we saw that's describing unregenerate men, women, and children. Elsewhere, it says we're dead in our sins and trespasses, and it takes a miracle of God to regenerate us, to make us at all in tune with the things of His Spirit. 
And God could have just as easily removed the grave clothes of our own fle- our old flesh, fleshly nature, and made us perfect, taken away all of our sins, but He chose not to do so. That would not have been any more of a miracle than our regeneration was. Our regeneration is a radical, it's an amazing change. Why did He not just do away with our sins? Well, He's chosen not to for a very good reason. Uh, verse 22 says that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. He is likening our sanctification to the putting off of the old garments of the old man, the grave clothes, and to the putting on of the new life clothes in Christ And just as the friends and the relatives of Lazarus were involved in helping him to get out of the bondage of those grave clothes, he's involved us, the body of Christ, uh, in that as well. We're to be exhorting one another, encouraging one another, stirring up one another to good works. And Hebrews even says provoking one another to good works. Uh, And over the past two weeks, we've been seeing Christians can be just as bound in their sinful habits as Lazarus was bound in grave clothes. Romans 7 describes that, and it is not a denial that there has been a resurrection from the dead. Instead, in Romans 7, you find this person with new longings of heart, new desires for holiness. It's not something that the unregenerate would have. Uh, The man of 7, Romans 7, is regenerate. He's been raised from the dead. He's come out of the tomb. He's ready to live, but he finds himself bound in those old grave clothes. He's frustrated uh, with those things. Now, we looked at two interpretations of Romans 7. We saw both of them are inadequate. And if those are the only two choices, boy, it's, it's a troubling thing. Which of the two do you pick? Is it describing the unregenerate man? Uh, and we saw, well, there's some issues or some problems with that. Is it describing the normal Christian walk? We saw, I really couldn't be describing the normal Christian walk. Romans 8 is describing that. And Jay Adams gives us a third alternative. He says, what's going on here? If you look at Romans 7, is he's describing not sin in the heart. He's describing sin dwelling in our members. That's in the body parts. Now, how can sin dwell in the body parts? You know, if you're reformed, you understand that sin is not just a metaphysical something that, you know, like a virus that infects you. No, it's an action of the Spirit. And so how in the world can sin dwell in our members? Well, he says the only way it can happen is through habits. Habits are something where your nervous system engages in thoughts, in words, in actions without even thinking about it. You've done it so regularly. Now it's not even a decision. It just comes out because it's part of your body. Okay, it's been programmed into your nervous system. And uh, yet we saw in our first sermon that there is hope for holiness. We can get from Romans seven and into Romans eight. In fact, we must never think of Romans seven as being the normal course of a Christian's life throughout his whole life. That's where some people park their whole lives. They never do get over their sinful habits. But he intends us to go from Romans seven and into Romans eight we can gain victory over every one of those sinful habits. Now, we'll never be perfectly sinless, right? But the habits, they can be broken. It shouldn't be that characterizes our our lives at all. We need not cry out forever, as Paul did in Romans 7, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that's why the very next verse indicates not hopelessness, 
But the answer, it's a transition verse into Romans 8, which describes living in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit's power, in liberty. And what does that transition verse says? It says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the one who can deliver us. And so we saw two weeks ago that Ephesians 1 gives us the same hope when it says that God the Father is on our side. He's rooting for us. He has made a plan. He has predestined us to holiness. And His plan is a perfect plan. Then in chapter 2, we saw that God the Son is rooting for us as well. Uh, because He takes the Father's plan and He purchased everything we need for life and godliness and He put it in the bank account in heaven. And so we're wealthy in Christ. And then in chapter 3, we saw that the Spirit is on our side because He takes the Father's plan. He takes all that the Son has purchased. And when we by faith come, He works that into our lives by the power of His might. And then we saw in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, that God constructed the church in some, uh, such a way that the church is to be on our side as well. We're to be encouraging one another and helping one another to grow in our Christian walk through prayer, through accountability, through exhortation, and other things like that, and through the, the officers that God put into the church. And then we saw that we have to be involved in this process of sanctification as well. That's nine steps uh, to victory in verses 17 through 24. And then we looked at some specific ways or issues that Paul uses to illustrate how this can look like in our lives. And he brought up lying, apathy, stealing, and corrupt words. Now, today we're getting to the innermost garments right on the rotting flesh. Okay, these are the stinkiest garments of all, the bad attitudes that we have. That's in verse 31. So he says there, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away with, from you with all malice. The first piece of grave clothes is a foul and stinky garment called bitterness. Now, bitterness can refer in the Bible to a literal bitter tasting medicine or bitter tasting thing that you wouldn't want to eat. But it can also refer to a, a bitterness of heart, a resentment concerning the things that have happened to us. Acts 8 verse 23, Peter said to Simon, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness. Bitterness is, a, is like a poison that creeps into our hearts and makes us miserable because of unresolved anger. Now, let me give you some definitions various scholars have given of this word. T.S. Rendell defines bitterness as, quote, the atmosphere produced in us internally when we meditate over life's circumstances and decide that we have not been given a fair deal. Have you ever felt that way? You just feel this negativity gnawing at your insides because somebody got promoted when you should have been the one that got promoted. Or your spouse is not what he or she is supposed to be. You know, or your parents aren't letting you do the things that you really wanted to do. Uh, that bitterness can take over. And if you feel that way, you need to recognize the dangerous thing that bitterness really is. Now, I've had people on a number of times tell me, but Pastor, you do not understand the incredibly raw deal that I have been given. I have a right to be bitter. Now, you know what that sounds like to me? That sounds as silly as saying, I have a right to wear these grave clothes. And I have a right to be smelling stinky. <laughs> That's exactly what it sounds to me. And I say, no way, get that off of you because it is not going to help you. It makes you unfit to live with. Who wants to be hanging around a person who smells like a corpse? No one. Another scholar defined bitterness as the radioactive fallout that contaminates everything in life 
after there has been a failure in the core of our being to come to grips with life's disappointments. And so when you're bitter, you have been overcome by evil. Okay? That other person's still controlling you. Now, he might live 500 miles away, but he's there day and night just triggering bad feelings within you. He's controlling you. Uh, John MacArthur defines it this way. Bitterness is that feeling of hurt, resentment, anger, hate, and even revenge that often build up in our heart when we have been bitten by certain experiences of life. James Merritt said, Bitterness is harbored hurt hidden in the heart. I think you get the picture, and it's not a pretty picture. (laughs) Uh, You may be bitter with your spouse, with your parents, with your pastor because he didn't visit you properly, with your ruling elder. Uh, You may be bitter with your boss. Uh, You could be bitter against man. You could be bitter against God. But what's happening is it is polluting the inside. It's a poison that crowds out joy and contentment and peace. And it not only defiles you, Hebrews 12 says it is guaranteed if you do not pluck it up by the roots, it will defile everybody around you as well. Not everybody because people can resist it, but it will defile many is what it says in Hebrews Uh, chapter 12. And so if you are held in the bonds of bitterness, my exhortation to you is get rid of it. Do not relish it. Realize this is a stinking grave garment. The second and third pieces of grave clothes are wrath and anger. And the difference between those two is that the Greek word for wrath uh, refers to a person who just flies off the handle. He gets really upset and angry and then it's all over with. And he's back to normal, whereas the word for anger in the Greek indicates a kind of under the surface, long lasting burning. You know, it's a ongoing kind of an anger. You can see the definitions in your outlines. Let me go ahead and read those. Wrath is anger erupting, anger that boils over but soon subsides. It can be rendered as outbursts of passion or simply a person with a bad temper. Uh, Whereas anger is a settled disposition of indignation an angry outlook upon everything. It can be rendered as long-lived anger, whereas wrath is spontaneous and quick. Anger is more premeditated. Now, some people think that they're okay because they don't fly off the handle. You know, sure, they get angry, but they control it, you know, and they're not like this other person who's yelling and screaming and saying vulgarities and things like that, and so they feel more righteous than the other person. I want you to realize, God says, Nuh-uh, I don't want you even thinking that way. That's a stinky garment too. Even if it's a, a, a repressed anger, but it's under the surface there and it's making you be poisoned, you've got to get rid of it. Now, on the other hand, there are people who fly off the handle and they say a few you know, bad things to you and they feel more righteous than the person uh, who's uh, got anger under the surface because they say, hey, I just vent. I get rid of it, and then I'm, I don't hold any grudges against this other person. This guy, he holds grudges. And the Scripture just will not let you think that way. They are both stinky grave clothes. He wants you to get rid of them. He wants you to put those off. Um, and the uh, Bible indicates that we can gain the victory on this. If you think you can't do it, I would refer you back to sermon number one. In 1984, uh, I was over a period of time giving uh, neuthetic counseling to a guy who had terrible problems with both the seething underneath kind of anger and the wrath, uh, the blow-ups that uh, he had, 
And I tell you, there were times in the counseling where I thought for sure he was going to pound me into the dust. I mean, this was a big guy and very threatening. And then after he'd have his outburst, he'd feel so bad and he'd repent of it. He was just like Paul in Romans chapter 7. Oh, wretched man that I am. I and mean, he's just lamenting the fact he cannot get over this. But as he began implementing the biblical steps that we talked about, this man completely, and I mean completely, got rid of his problems with anger and wrath. In fact, he's a PCA pastor right now. And if he could do it, you could do it. I've never seen a person more wrathful than that person was. Why? Because he took God's Word seriously. He believed that Christ can gain, give him the victory. Next piece of grave clothes is clamor. The margin renders it as loud quarreling. So you see a husband and a wife shouting at each other and their temper is flaring. And finally, one guy just leaves and slams the door and goes off in a huff. That is clamor. Okay? You may think that such quarrelsome shouting, as F.F. F. Bruce renders it, or loud self-assertion, as Findlay renders it, is okay because, man, that guy's a pain in the neck. You know, If you realized how bad he was, you'd be shouting at him too. Only you probably use choicer words than pain in the neck You know, when you were talking about that person. But it does not matter how bad the other person is to hold on to the so-called right to be clamorous is as silly as uh, Lazarus saying, I have a right to stay in these grave clothes because, you know, those Pharisees have been so mean to me. They want to kill me. These are awful. I'm going to feel sorry for myself and put these grave clothes back on again. That's exactly what it looks like to the Lord. It does not make you pleasant to the Lord. It certainly does not make you pleasant in the eyes of other people. And yet God in His love and in His compassion has made a way for you to be able to be a pleasant person to be around and never again to be clamorous. Now, when two clamorous people to get together, you really have trouble because they feed off of each other. Uh, the ones, you know, try, I mean, they're both trying to struggle working on this. And yet the other person knows how to push their buttons. And before they know it, they're back exactly where they were before. It reminds me of the expression that I heard uh, some time back. It uh, goes something along the lines, uh, never slap a man who's chewing tobacco. Uh, <laughs> because it'll come right back all over you, right? Uh, somebody uh, once said there's two theories to arguing with a woman. Neither one works. Now, that is a false statement, okay? <laughs> Before you women club me. <laughs> that is a false statement. What the statement should say is there's two theories to arguing with a clamorous person, whether male or female, and neither one works. And why does it not work? Is because the clamorous person is being driven by his emotions, not by reason. He's interested in winning, not in reconciling, not in seeing God's glory uh, in that situation. And so, if you are a clamorous man, woman, or child, you need to recognize this as a sin that God wants to put off. It's grave clothes that are binding you, holding you in bondage. And let the body help you with those filthy windings. The fifth piece of grave clothes is evil speaking. This is a reference to the foul language or cussing that a person does when he gets angry. And if you're one of those that just rips into people when you get upset, again... Just realize nobody likes to be around somebody that's been in uh, grave clothes for four days. You know, just back off and allow God's grace to minister through you. The last piece of grave clothes is malice. And I want you to look at the definitions in your outline. It is ill will or a desire to injure. 
It reflects an evil inclination of mind that even takes delight in inflicting hurt or injury in one's fellow man. It is resentment that is turned even more sour so that we wish to see them suffer or have a desire to injure. And you could say that this is, this is the attitude when you've been hurt that dreams of ways of getting even or of seeing that person. You're just imagining, boy, yeah, if that guy really got publicly embarrassed in that way, that would be a great thing. This is the attitude that just wishes, oh man, I wish I had been able to say that zingy zinger. This would have been zingier than the other zinger I let loose with. And you lie awake at night thinking of different ways that you could make this person really feel bad about the sins that he's engaged in. That is malice. It destroys you internally as well. In his book, Once I Was Blind But Now I Squint, uh, <laughs> uh, Kent uh, Crockett talks about an elderly woman who passed away. And he said, when the family members were cleaning out her house, they found a scrapbook filled with obituaries from the local newspaper. Many of the death notices pertained to people she had detested. As bizarre as it may sound, she kept a scrapbook of her dead enemies. This woman had five different clippings of her most despised foe in her morbid memory book. Apparently, she had gained some kind of strange satisfaction by thinking that they could no longer torment her. Or could they? If we don't forgive our deceased enemies, they'll continue to haunt us through our hateful memories of them. And I think that is so, so true. Uh, the people who insist on hanging on to the bad attitudes that we have been describing, they're hurting themselves the worst. I mean, they do defile other people as well and hurt them, but they're bound up in these grave clothes. Now, that is quite a list of stinky garments, isn't it? Are you with me and wanting to put those off? I mean, I've been involved in, in some of these bad attitudes in the past as well, and I can assure you these are not good garments to be having on your body. They are not good at all. And before you can put on the beautiful garments that Jesus Christ has purchased, He's already put it into your wardrobe, and He's saying, put it on. What you have to do is you've got to take the old garments off and take a shower of forgiveness and uh, then uh, take the next steps that we're going to look at now. The first beautiful garment is listed in chapter 4, verse 32. It says, and be kind to one another. Uh, the word kind means gentle, kind, agreeable, manageable, mild, pleasant. According to one dictionary, the basic meaning is to that which causes no discomfort, easy, and gives sub-meanings as kind, loving, benevolent. Another dictionary has friendliness, kindness, mildness. It's already making some of you feel <laughs> upset. Speak says, in the second century, the spectacle of Christian agape was so stunning for pagans who said, behold, how they love one another, that according to Tertullian, they called Christians, not Christiani, but Christiani, made up of mildness or kindness. And so if you have had this tendency to be rough, rude, abrupt with people, gruff with people, you might think, Man, this is impossible. I don't even know how in the world I'm going to be able to do this. But this is not the way I am. You know, my grandpa was rough and crude and my dad was and I and it's just the way I am. But let me assure you, Jesus Christ has already purchased that garment for you. It's hanging up in your wardrobe. It is there for you to put on and he can give you the ability to make those changes by his grace. Proverbs 31 verse 26 says about the virtuous woman. She opens her mouth with wisdom 
and on her tongue is the law of kindness. We shouldn't think of this as being something that's just for special people. Okay, this kind of a guy, yeah, he's very mild and very gentle. No, he says it's a law of kindness. This is something that should be across the board that every person, every Christian puts on. When you start practicing this kindness to those that you would have been tempted to get really angry and upset with, what happens is you're killing the inward principles to all of these negative attitudes that we are, that we are talking about here. And you are, you are putting yourself into a position where God's grace can flow through you in a remarkable way. And it's really fun to see God's grace come through. When I've taken God at His word, you know, when you get up to that point, it seems like nothing's happened. God's not coming through. You take God at His word and you respond in a right way and you can actually sense God's grace taking over. It's sort of like the man with the withered hand. Jesus, when he was commanding an absolute impossibility when He said, stretch forth your hand. Now, if that man had said, I can't stretch it forth. It's been withered, you know, for years and years. You've got to heal it first, then I'll stretch it forth. But if he'd had that attitude, it would never have been healed. Jesus commanded him to will to do the impossible. And praise God, because he is sovereign, he works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure, right? And it's the same with our walk in these areas of bad attitude. It's when we get to the point of saying, okay, Lord, I know this feels like it is impossible, but I'm going to take you at your word and I'm going to begin to implement the things you've told me to do that you find God's grace coming over. And I love the story. I've told this before and I won't uh, go into it in detail, but Corey Ten Boom, who had been abused in the prison camp and that, that uh, former guard came up, wanted to shake her hand and uh, uh, ask her to forgive him. And she said there was a coldness on her heart. She could not grant that forgiveness. But she said, it's amazing what you can do when uh, you uh, take God at his word. She stretched out her hand. She didn't feel anything. But it was when she stretched out her hand and said, yes, I forgive you, brother, that she said she felt the electric current of God's love so powerfully it just overwhelmed her. She's never felt God's love to that extent before. Why? Because she was willing to stretch. And if you need to be willing to stretch forth the withered hand of your spiritual impossibilities and God then will come through. So you're putting yourself in that position. Well, the second new life garment is called tender hearted. Being tender hearted is the ability to weep with those who weep. To sense when other people are going through troubles and to want to minister to those people. Uh, many times, people will use a sharp tongue against you and just chew you up one side and down the other because they feel hurt, right? And so if you respond with cutting words, what are you doing? You're hurting them even more. You're almost guaranteeing that it's going to be a greater and a greater confrontation. But if instead you respond in a tender-hearted way with a soft answer, and you say, man, and they've just finished just chewing you out. And you say, well, I'm really sorry that you feel that way. You must have had a, a really rough day. And I'm sure there's areas that I can change. Can we just sit down together and talk about this? Let me try to understand where your heart is at. And let's pray together. You might have a chance of pulling this person out of the caustic attitudes and into the kind of same tender heartedness that you are doing. And it's simply because you've been tender hearted to them rather than giving to them what they deserve. 
Now, they deserve to be chewed up one side and down the other as well, right? But we're not supposed to give them what we deserve. they deserve. We're supposed to be tender-hearted to them. In fact, being tender-hearted is going to enable you to feel sorry for them when they've just finished chewing you out because God gives you new eyes to realize, oh man, this person is so wrapped up in these stinky grave clothes, he can't get out. He's in bondage here. And so you feel sorry for them and it helps you then not to react so badly. But also, tenderheartedness makes us have eyes to see ministry needs before anyone else does. Now, let me read you an interesting letter that was written to Ann Landers. And I'm definitely not a fan of Ann Landers. I think she's got some real humanistic columns. But I thought this letter uh, illustrates a couple that was being tenderhearted to this lady. Dear Ann, I'm a 46-year-old woman divorced with three grown children. After several months of chemotherapy following a mastectomy for breast cancer, I was starting to put my life back together when my doctor called with the results of my last checkup. They had found more cancer, and I was devastated. My relatives had not been supportive. I was the first person in the family to have cancer, and they didn't know how to behave toward me. They tried to be kind, but I had the feeling they were afraid that it was contagious. They called on the phone to see how well it was going, but kept their distance, and that really hurt. Last Saturday, I headed for the laundromat. You see the same people there almost every week. We exchange greetings and make small talk. So I pulled into the parking lot, determined not to look depressed, but my spirits were really low. While taking my laundry out of the car, I looked up and saw a man, one of the regulars, leaving with his bundle. He smiled and said, good morning, how are you today? Suddenly, I just lost control. I lost control of myself and blurted out, this is the worst day of my life. I have more cancer. Then I began to cry. He put his arms around me and just let me sob. And then he said, I understand. My wife has been through it too. After a few minutes, I felt better, stammered out my thanks and proceeded on with my laundry. About 15 minutes later, here he came with his wife. Without saying a word, she walked over and hugged me. Then she said, I've been there too. <clears throat> Feel free to talk to me. I know what you're going through. And I can't tell you how much that meant to me. Here was this total stranger taking her time to give me emotional support and courage to face the future at a time when I was ready to give up. Oh, I hope God gives me a chance to do for someone else what that wonderful woman and her husband did for me. Meanwhile, Anne, please let your readers know that even though there are a lot of hard-hearted people in this world, there are some incredibly generous and loving ones too. Being tender-hearted is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And you don't have to just stand there and look with envy and say, man, I wish that I could have that. By God's grace, you could be there as well. Because Christ has already purchased the garment for you, it's a matter of putting on the steps we looked at in, chapter, in the first sermon. Every time the garment falls off, you put it right back on again. You confess and you, you go forward. The third beautiful garment is called forgiving one another. Now, I'm not denying that these things are difficult to do. I'm not denying that at all. But what I am saying is when you do them, you're going to end up being far more blessed than the person that you forgive. Uh, Clara Barton, the founder of the American Red Cross, was one time reminded by a friend of hers about a horrible deed that an individual had done to her. And Clara Barton acted as if it didn't even bother her. And the friend had said, don't you remember that incident? And Clara Barton says, 
No, I distinctly remember forgetting it. (laughs) Now, I think we do need to clarify, you can't just forget sin. In fact, God does not forget sin. That's a misunderstanding of a Scripture in Ezekiel. There is a vast difference between forgetting sin and not bringing sin to remembrance. You see, God is omniscient, so He can't forget anything. Forgetting is passive. You don't have to do anything to forget. You just do it. It's a defect. It's like amnesia, right? Whereas bringing, not bringing to remembrance is very active. You are, when you're not bringing to remembrance, you are refusing to meditate upon, to dwell, to nurse that pain, to relish thinking about the grudge that you hold against that other person. Refusing to bring to remembrance is a very active and deliberate saying, I'm not going to hold this thing, even though that person deserves it. I'm not going to hold it against them. I'm not going to let it come between us. That is refusing to bring uh, to remembrance. And uh, those of you who don't forgive, you are bound the tightest in the stinky grave bandages. It's inevitable that you will become poisoned with bitterness. The last uh, garment that Paul mentions is love. Not human love, but supernatural, God-given love. Chapter 5, verse 2 says, And walk in love as Christ also has loved us, and given Himself for us. And so this is self-giving, agape love. It's not like the love of the world. The love of the world is a counterfeit uh, that's really uh, self-indulgence. That's why people fall in love and then they fall out of love. Uh, You know, when that other person is not indulging them any longer, then they, they quit. They're no longer in love. Well, that's not the biblical definition of love which is sacrificial. When... Uh, Britney Spears broke up with her boyfriend. The newspaper uh, reported her as saying, I need my single time to learn how to be self-loving. It's an amazing statement, but it's often the way the world thinks. Self-assertive, self-loving, self-appreciative, self-congratulatory, okay, self uh, Preoccupied. I need my single time to learn how to be self-loving. Well, those words should never be on our lips. And if they are, you're going to make yourself more and more miserable. You're going to go down this downward spiral. Uh, we receive the most when we give the most. And it's only as we are exercising the love of Christ that He sheds abroad in our hearts that, that the Sermon on the Mount says we really are demonstrating our sonship. He says, to say you love your your, your relatives and the people who are nice to you. Eh, any pagan can do that, it says. That doesn't show that you're sonship. Where you demonstrate that the grace, the supernatural grace of God is in you is when you love those who have been mean to you. When your spouse has been mean, you say something right back loving. When you can uh, love those who persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. That is a demonstration of God's love. In fact, anytime you see any of this clothing present in a person's life, it's an evidence that God's Spirit is at work in that person. It really is a marvelous thing to see how God sanctifies us and enables us uh, to uh, do what would be the opposite of our natural inclinations. This past week, I forwarded an email to uh, all of you in the church uh, that somebody had uh, sent to me that talked about the counterfeits to the fruit of the Spirit. 
And, you know, you may not agree with everything in there, but I thought there was some really good stuff in there. And I would encourage you to meditate upon that because there are so many counterfeits to the things, the garments that are here. But let me end the sermon by giving you some aids that can help you to get these clothes on and to keep them on. Point A, simply reminding you to go back to the first sermon because it gives some steps we're not going to cover again. Point B is also important. When you're tempted to respond with fire to fire and, you know, with evil attitudes and words to the evil attitudes and words that come to you, ask God, ask His Spirit to give you an understanding of how filthy and awful these grave clothes are. Ask Him to help you to loathe these grave clothes. Now, that doesn't come naturally. I tell you, when you're in the heat of the moment, <laughs> you don't think of these grave clothes as being grave clothes. You want to fly off the handle. You want to say that zinger, right? Uh, you want to nurse that grudge. It's not a natural thing. But what you're doing is you're saying, Father, I want my mind to be thinking your thoughts after you. I want to look at these sins the way you look at these. I want to loathe them and hate them the way that you loathe them and hate them. I found a story this past week and I checked it out on Snopes to make sure it wasn't an urban legend. But uh, Snopes said that the likelihood is this is true, but it is kind of a quasi-urban legend because people have taken the original story and put their own cities in it. But anyway, the way this story goes is that up in uh, Victoria, British Columbia, up in Canada, there was a a school where for some reason the girls there would put lipstick on and then they would press their lips up against the mirrors and there'd be dozens of these lip prints all over the mirrors. And the janitor was really frustrated because he'd clean them off and the next day they'd peer again. So finally he went to the, uh, the principal and he said, we've got to do something about this. I'm sick and tired of cleaning off all of these mirrors. And so they talked a little bit and they said, OK, we've got a plan. And uh, they called some of the girls into the into the washroom and they said, you know, we don't know who's been doing this, but it really is not fair for the janitor. I want to show you how difficult this really is. And so the janitor pours a little bit of soap into the toilet and gets his squeegee in there and starts <laughs> wiping down the, the mirrors. And these girls, you know. <laughs> uh, these girls just wide-eyed are just grossed out. <laughs> They never had anybody sticking any more uh, lipstick onto the, onto the mirror. In fact, every time they looked at the mirror, all they could think about is where that squeegee had been in the toilet. Well, <laughs> next time you are tempted to whine and get bitter, to cuss somebody out, remember that story. If you could see the dirt that you are kissing with your thoughts, your attitudes, and your words... It would gross you out because what you're doing is you're giving in to filthy, demonic temptations and suggestions. You're giving in to the temptations of your flesh. They're filthy. And here you are. You've been kissing the mirror with your ungodly attitudes. And so ask God, Lord, help me to see that this mirror I've been kissing is filthy. Help me to look at this, not with the eyes of man, but with your eyes to hate the things that you hate and to love the things that you love. Point C, ask the Spirit to give you a new appreciation of the sweet aroma of the new clothes provided by Christ. And I've given several aspects of how perfumed these clothes of Christ really are. Now look at the perfume of His forgiveness. Chapter 4, verse 32. Forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. 
Now, when you meditate deeply on all that you have been forgiven of, it will gender within you a new ability to forgive others, which is almost always going to be far less uh, of a a forgiveness than God has given to you. Next, chapter 5, verse 1 tells us, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Now, our actions are just a tiny, tiny reflection of the forgiveness that God has given to us and uh, of the way in which He is tender-hearted to us. He calls us here, dear children. And so, what He is saying is we need to forgive in the same way. We need to be tender to others in the same way, treating them as dear children of God. Third, daily ask God to give you His true love, to love the unlovable. Because God does not call us to just love the lovable, cuddly, cute people in this world. No. Uh, He calls us to love the unlovable by His grace. And when you think about it, none of us is lovable in God's sight apart from Christ. None of us looks very appealing to God apart from Christ. And yet God says in chapter 5, verse 2, "...and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us." But you've got to experience His love before you're going to be able to love others in that way. You've got to drink deeply of the Lord. Guilt is a lousy motivator. I think it can motivate us a little bit. And it's not a bad thing because Scripture says we should feel guilty over certain things. But it's not the kind of motivator that love is. In uh, 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul says, The love of Christ compels us. The more you experience of God's love, it compels you. Or other translations, it constrains you. It hems you in to doing the right things. And so developing a, a deep, deep relationship with the Lord, I think, is a key to putting on these new life clothes of Christ. Fourth, close yourself daily in Christ's legal righteousness. Now, what Satan's going to do when you foul up is he's going to just try to get you discouraged by making you feel what a dirty, rotten scoundrel you are. You're a lousy Christian. Just give it up. You can't do anything. Are you even a Christian? That's the kind of thing he's going to do to you. Make you doubt your salvation or make you doubt you can ever gain the victory. But what your response to Satan should be, of course I'm a lousy Christian. That's why I'm not looking to myself like you're wanting me to do. I'm going to look to the Lord Jesus Christ who is the source of my grace. Satan's going to constantly try to get you to take your eyes off of Christ and to put your eyes onto yourself. That's a dangerous place to be because you're always going to be letting yourself down. Your security is totally uh, in the Lord. Uh, And so you need to uh, uh, meditate on the theology of chapter 5, verse 2, where it says, Jesus is an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Until you are secure in Christ... You won't be able to put off the old garments and to put on the new garments because it's not we who smell so great. It's Christ who smells so great. Okay, It's not self-esteem. It's Christ-esteem. His imputed righteousness makes us totally secure. We don't doubt our salvation when Satan brings these things and these sins into our place. His imparted grace, which is sanctification, takes us from grace to grace and from glory to glory. And yet it is Christ and Christ alone who can make you smell like cologne to the Lord. And so when you blow it this next week, and if you're just starting on this, you're going to blow it. 
Okay, you just be prepared. You're going to blow it because we said it takes six weeks of daily concentrated effort to have put off an old habit, whether it's a sports habit or whether it's a spiritual habit. doesn't matter. About six weeks until you feel so comfortable with the new habit of righteousness, you do it without thinking. And so don't give up. Don't get discouraged. And so when you blow it uh, this next week, confess your fault immediately to the person that you've blown it against. Confess it to the Lord as well. And make sure you call it what it really is. Don't say, you know, minimize the sin. Say, you know, this was a great sin against you. It was a foul and stinking garment. It was grave clothes. It was attached to my own life. I hate it. And I want to be righteous before the Lord. Please forgive me for what I have done. So you ask for forgiveness of them. You ask forgiveness of Christ. And then you seek cleansing by the atonement and you ask God to finish the good work that He has begun in you. Tell Him you want to get from Romans 7 and into Romans 8 on this particular issue that you're struggling with. And He has given to you a power in Romans 8 that not even the greatest of pagans have ever been able to have. Alexander the Great was able to conquer the world, but he could not conquer himself. In fact, I just found out uh, recently that... Uh, because of his lack of self-control, when his best friend teased him, and when I heard the words he was teased with, it just seemed like a mild teasing, he got so angry he killed his friend. Now, he regretted it later, but here's a guy who can conquer the world. He can't even conquer his own, uh, his own heart. And yet I have seen, in contrast, men, women, and children who have conquered their bad habits and their attitudes and their words, and they've actually become people who are pleasant to be around. Okay, this is the goal that we should have to so much have the savor of Christ about us, his character being our character, that when we're hanging around unbelievers, they're drawn to Christ, the Lord of glory, because they see what he has done in us and through us. And so I want you to join with me in asking God uh, whether he would now begin to do that work in us. If this is something you would want in yourself, just say amen right now. Yes, Lord, I want it. Amen. Father, uh, we do agree with your word. We do want to get rid of these old, foul, stinking grave clothes. We want to put on the new life clothes that Jesus has purchased for us. And we thank you that you have uh, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Give us faith, Father, to uh, make checks on that spiritual bank account that you have given to us. And by your spirit, I pray that you would produce in us the savor of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would produce in us uh, such a, a, a wonderful testimony that even our attitudes uh, reflect the savor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please, Father, sanctify us from the inside and out. And we pray it in Christ's name to his glory. Amen. Let's respond to God's word by standing and uh, singing the uh, final hymn, uh, which is, Let, may, my, may the mind of Christ my Savior uh, live in me from day to day.